Well, we're in Genesis 28. We're going to read, we're going to pray, and we're going to unpack this passage. Genesis 28. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from Canaan, the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padam Aran, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, to the son of Bethuel, the Aramanian, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as, a, as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalel, Mahalel, yeah, anyway, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's wife, the son of Nibioth. Jacob left Bathsheba and went towards Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night, because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place to sleep, and he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on, on the earth, and the top of it reached the heaven. And behold, the angel of, angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I'll give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the, great, the gate of heaven. So, so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at, the first, at first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If the Lord will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Let's pray.
Gracious Father, we thank you that we can come to you through your word and through prayer. We thank you that through Jesus we have a gateway to heaven, a door that is open to us for salvation, that all the sheep who are yours must enter through him. As we come to ponder the reality of rest in Christ and the only means of salvation through him, as we ponder the uh, complexities of toil and rest, and Lord, as you work in the midst of us, I pray that you would comfort us in our many hours of toiling, encourage us in our rest, and remind us of your purpose to be with us face to face. And Lord, I pray that you would bring together my thoughts, but Lord, let them be faithful to your word. Let them not sway from the truth. Let them uphold the gospel and humble sinners and exalt Christ and encourage holy living. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a great tension in life between toiling and resting. How much should we toil and how often should we rest? Ecclesiastes 4.6 has been such a great encouragement to me over this past couple of months as it says, Better is a handful of quietness than two handful of handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind. Better is one handful of quietness than two handfuls of toiling. Whether it, to be, whether it be our secular work, our work in the home, or whether it be ministry, evangelism and discipleship, there is a tension we must hold that there is a time to cease. The very image of how God created the heavens and earth in seven days or six days reveals to us that the whole of creation is heading towards rest. The seventh day was the aim of creation. God had labored enough. He had done all that he could do and he rested on the seventh day. The same is true for us, that we should follow in his image and in his likeness. Yet for some reason, we often have the attitude of, well, one more day, I'll see a breakthrough. Just one more effort and I'm sure I will get to the next step where I can rest. I think evangelism is a great image of this. We know as a truth that those who would be saved must hear the gospel. The gospel is the power for salvation. And Romans 10 tells us that those who would be saved must hear the gospel. But often... Our preaching and our constant toil in speaking is a hindrance to people pondering the realities of the truth of the gospel. We need, to take, we need to take times of silence, times away from that person we may be preaching to in order for them to ponder the truth of the gospel. A handful of quietness will increase the harvest more than two handfuls of toil. This might seem to be a weird place to start after reading that passage as to how we ended up on toil and rest. But I think we see two very clear images of this. One is right off the bat, 
Isaac is an older man. We know he's quite old. He can barely see to the point where uh, uh, Jacob has been able to deceive him by fooling him in thinking that he is Esau. Isaac, in this chapter, immediately after being deceived by his wife and his son, chooses to have a handful of quiet. Chooses not to rebuke or correct or threat over the fret over the pain of the growth that is needed in Jacob. Isaac decides to take quietness and to continue to trust God in the midst of Jacob's own process. Jacob, on the other hand, is somewhat of a lazy man. He's been in his father's tent for all his life. Esau has gone out and become a great hunter and uh, found a family for himself, but Jacob seems to have been idle much of his life. He may be 40 years old at this point, maybe even older, and he hasn't done a whole lot. Well, God is going to teach him the necessary part of life of toiling, and he's going to teach him in a hard and confronting way over the next few chapters. So as we look at this tension in life, we see at times we need to learn to rest and take that handful of quietness. And other times we need to learn to toil and work hard at things. And the tension will live with us all the days of our life. So let's see how this plays out in this story. We have the first part of this story where Isaac calls in Jacob. Then Isaac called Jacob in to bless him and to direct him. And he said, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. He goes on from there and he blesses him with the same blessing that was Abraham's. It says in verse 4, may he give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. So this is Isaac putting the real blessing of Abraham on him. We've already seen Isaac bless Jacob, but now he is making it more specific about Abraham's blessing, land, offspring, and of course, a blessing for his name we will see later on. I think what's so interesting about this is Isaac's decision to stay silent over the deception that has faced him just before. He's been humiliated. He is the patriarch of the family and he's lying in his deathbed pretty much, sick, barely sees, and his wife and his son have decided to play a trick on him, a pretty major trick that has led to the blessing. But what we see in the silence of Isaac, what we see in his handful of quietness rather than two handful of handfuls of toil, he had, he had two options, right? He could have gone forth and challenged Jacob and said, you need to grow up, son. You've got to stop being lazy. You need to go and find out what it means to be the patriarch of a family. Instead, Isaac's decision to remain quiet and take a handful of quietness and call Jacob into himself to protect him from his other son. Because just before, if we head to just to the end of chapter 27, we see very clearly that Esau wants to kill Jacob. As soon as Isaac is dead, Esau is going to find a way to kill Jacob. 
So Isaac calls him in out of Rebekah's request. And because of his understanding, his theology of God, his trust in the promises of God, although he loved Esau more, he has come to choose Jacob through God's sovereign plan and purpose. Maybe Rebekah has revealed to Isaac the prophecy that came to her when she had Esau and Jacob in the womb. Or maybe he just is trusting in the knowledge that he already has. Maybe he's recalling when he went with his father up the hill and how the Lord provided a lamb for him. Isaac of all people has one of the most tangible realities of Lord my provider, the God who provides a sacrifice. So rather than toiling in the moment that Jacob needs to grow up and that Jacob needs to find himself uh, as a man, as an independent man, he decides to trust in God. He trusts in God to the point where he says, may God give you the blessing. And then he sends him away. He sends him away with the same purpose that Abraham sent his servant away with to find a wife that is not a Canaanite woman. Now we looked at this a few weeks ago where Isaac was not a was not the offspring who could redeem a slave woman to become his wife. And Jesus was the true uh, king, the true savior who could redeem a slave and redeem the curse and bring them out of slavery into fellowship with him. But here we see the same situation take place. Jacob, of course, cannot redeem one of the Canaanites. They are a cursed tribe of Ham. And Jacob is sent away to Abraham's or to Rebekah's brother to find a wife for himself. In sending him away, he will leave the promised land. He will leave this land of promise that he is meant to take possession of. We know Isaac was, as a symbol, told that he must remain in the land. But here Jacob is going to leave and the new patriarch of Israel is going to spend a long period of time outside of the promised land as God humbles and refines him. Isaac here trusts that God is going to refine him. Isaac here is trusting in the God who is going to keep his son and bring him to a place where he is right to be a patriarch of the family. Isaac doesn't mention any of this. He just literally sends him off to go and find a wife from his clan. I think so often I need to hear this. So often I'm surprised at my own faithlessness in God's plan and I spend more time left stressing and toiling to fix God's plan rather than trusting what God is doing. So I preach this to myself to be more like Isaac and remind us of the passage that says, who by worrying can add a single hour to their life? Who by worrying, who by anxious toiling can we add any extra time to our life? There is a time where we just have to rest on the promises of God and trust that he holds 
the whole world in his hands, a simple truth we teach children yet forget as adults so often. Isaac has been told that the stars will be like his descendants. The grains of sand will be like his descendants. He needs not toil over this or worry about this. God is going to bring it to fruition. The same is true for us. The promises are as tangible as the stars in the sky and the sands, sand on the sea. We have Christ, God among us, God with us. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And Isaac here demonstrates what an old man knows so best and so well, that there is so much time for toil, so much time in life for toil, but so often do we forget to rest and take the handful of quietness. Isaac decides to take this handful of quietness and send his son off on his own into the wilderness to be humbled and to, taught, to be taught some lessons. The story jumps here away from Jacob to Esau. He's sort of a secondary character and remains that for the remainder of uh, Jacob's life. We will see him pop up here and there. But right now we see him listening in. It's a pretty horrible sort of scene if you think about it. We've got Jacob... Isaac and Rebekah having a family meeting and Esau is on the outer. He has been rejected. He's heard the promise. He's heard that Jacob has been sent away to take a wife from uh, a wife that isn't from the, the, the tribe of Canaanite, the Canaanites, a wife of his own clan. And Esau's listening. Well, Esau's a man who knows what it is to toil. Esau is a man who's fixed every one of his problems. He goes out into the wilderness and hunts game. He is a man who can fix this. So listening in, he comes up with a plan. And it, on first reading, it sounds like he decides to go and take a Canaanite wife. But it says here, uh, he heard that you must not take a wife from the Canaanite. Verse 7 uh, it says, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padamaran. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife besides the others, the, the wives he had. What we see here is not that he's going to take a Canaanite wife. He's already got two of those. He's already got two Hittite wives. And now he's realizing, okay, this doesn't please my father. So what I need to do is I need to toil harder. I need to work more. I need to find a way to please my father. And if I please my father enough, I will get the blessing back. So where's he go? Ishmael. Ishmael is a son of Abraham. If I go and take a wife that isn't from the Canaanites, but rather from Ishmael, maybe Isaac will say, this is a good thing. Yet Ishmael is a slave. Ishmael was a slave, a child of a slave woman. And the curse that is on Ham and that runs down into the Canaanite tribes may be different to the curse that is on Ishmael, but nonetheless, he is not the offspring of Abraham. He has been sent away. He has been physically removed from the midst. And Ishmael cannot redeem because he is not Christ. 
So he's toiling, he's earning, he's striving, does not improve his chances of becoming the blessed one. His toiling has very little effort in it, uh, very little goal, uh, very little success in it, and it does not change the situation. It's a reminder of the passages in Hebrews where it talks about him repenting in tears, but it being insufficient. His tears were worldly grief. His tears were not godly grief. Godly grief brings, it, brings us to a place of complete surrender before Christ, not to a place of trying to fix the wrongs that we have caused. We come to a place where we lay our life, life down at Jesus' feet and say, I have nothing. No toiling, no working, no good deeds, no righteousness do I have of my own. I am at your mercy. I need you to pour mercy upon me. Esau, though taking a wife from Ishmael, would not redeem his position. His worldly grief was insufficient for repentance. And it, he goes off to become, in many ways, exiled from the tribe of Israel. We return to Jacob in verse 10. And Jacob is headed off in the wilderness. And it says, he left Bathsheba and went towards Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place to sleep. At this point, we must recall who Jacob is. Jacob is said to be a quiet man. It says that he's a smooth man, that that doesn't have much to do with this. It said that he dwelt in tents. He was a man who dwelt in tents. He's the man who spent more time inside than outside in the wilderness. Esau has spent many a lonely nights under the stars, lying on rocky ground with a stone for a pillow. Jacob has had the comforts of inside living. Of course... Those comforts pale in comparison to ours. I'm sure living in a tent didn't have the luxury that we would have in our brick houses today with our comfy mattresses and soft pillows. I don't know if you've ever lied on a rock, but it's not that comfortable. Admittedly, I think when you first lie down and lean against it after hiking for some time, it does feel refreshing. But when you wake up in the morning or wake up after a nap, you realize that you are less refreshed than when you started. Jacob, a man who has been living in quite comfort, comfortable ease and hasn't learnt the pain of work and toil in his life, is going to learn the hard way. And although being blessed by Isaac, he does not inherit the blessing immediately, but is sent away on a long journey right up to the northeast back to Haran, where Abraham was so long ago. And he spends this night in the wilderness with a brother who knows the wilderness all so well, who wants him dead, under the stars, lying on a rough ground with his head on a rock. Humbling, I would say. And Matthew Henry writes, He was blessed with plenty of corn and wine, yet he went away poor. Was blessed with government, yet went out to serve 
and hard service at that. This was perhaps to correct him. Isaac needed not to toil over his son's failings, for God will make him into the man he wants him to be. Alone in the wilderness is just the beginning of God's gracious plan to humble Jacob. And it's interesting that it's in the times of our absolute, uh, in, in the times of people's absolute destitute, where all other comforts are taken from us, that God often meets us the most. How often is it when we're in the valley of sorrow that God reveals himself? How often is it in the times where we feel pain and suffering and it feels like there is no hope that we find the closest connection to God? Well, it's in this place that Jacob dreams. And in verse 12, we start this beautiful section from God. It says, and he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to the heavens. And behold, the angels of God was ascending and descending on it. Abraham saw God in many different ways. We could think through and we have the boiling pot that passed through the severed animals, the flaming torch that passed through. We know he appeared to him in the image of a man with two angels and the image of men. Uh, he spoke to him through all different means, audible voices. And Jacob, we're going to see, has his own personal interactions with God. It is one of those beautiful displays of God throughout the scriptures that we rarely see him meet people in the same way because he is so complex, so infinite, he can come to us in all different ways. I love the descriptions in Isaiah and Ezekiel and how there's similarities but there's differences because God, of course, is not bound by a physical body like we are. Well, Jacob's dream is one that opens him up to the spiritual realm. He's lying, looking up to the heavens, the skies, and as he sleeps and dreams, he is taken to a place where he sees into the spiritual places, into the spiritual heavens. And it's terrifying. For no mortal man can investigate the heavenly places and doesn't shake. Every mortal man that studies the heavenly realms and ponders the holiness of God will always, always find that they are there, that when they get there, they will tremble. They will be afraid. And as he looks, he sees the messengers of God at work, the angels. The word means literally messenger. And he sees them at work going to and fro, from God to earth, up and down, back and forth, keep always moving, giving God a response to what they have done, getting a new message to take to earth. It is an image of the invisible world. It's profound. He's seeing the secret things of God that do not belong to him, but they belong to God. And we see that at any one time in the spiritual world, God is working immensely. God is sending forth his messengers and receiving word from them. God sits above. He sits at the top of the ladder. 
and Jacob is at the bottom. The angels are moving between heaven and earth. God is working even while Jacob is sleeping. But his dream reveals a separation between God and man. God is in the heavens and man is on earth and there is a chasm between them. A chasm that we often don't realize or see. Yet he is seeing the real reality of there being a separation between him and the holy God. Yet there's a ladder. A ladder which mediates between heaven and earth. And the image of the ladder is a beautiful one if we understand Jesus speaking in John 1, 51. For some context, we'll read from 47, but we see this phrase that says the angels were descending upon the ladder and Jesus repeat, repeat, repeats a similar, similar phrase in 51. So John 1, 47 to 51, let's read. It says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered, Behold, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I sent, said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you do believe. You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven and earth and, and the angels of God. You'll see heaven open up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In this beautiful exchange, Jesus reveals that he is the one who is between God and man. He repeats the very phrase of Genesis 28, here that the angels are ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is the ladder between God and man. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. He is the only one that can bridge the gap between the earthly man and the heavenly, divine, holy places, God, where he dwells. The angels descend upon him and they are the messengers that come through him to every person. Many scribes, many philosophers, uh, many theologians believe that every interaction in the Old Testament between God and man happens through the mediator, Jesus. Of course, that is a mystery too great for us to understand. We can hold to that or we cannot. One day God may reveal it to us for truth. But here we see this ladder representing the second person of the Trinity, whose feet sit on earth and who dwells as Yahweh in the heavens. The voice comes from the top of the ladder. And behold, the Lord stood above and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I'll give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. 
promise is that the promise is that Jacob received is the same as Abraham. We just go back to Genesis 12 again or Genesis 15 or, or Genesis 17, the repeated promise of God. You'll have land, you'll have people, you'll have blessing. God's purpose, God's plan is always the same and it's always t- till this day going to be the same that he will have his people for himself and they will dwell in a land and they'll dwell under his rule and when they obey in their obedience they will be blessed israel at first the church in the present there's a little bit more that's specific to jacob it's specific to jacob in that jacob has left the promised land Isaac, of course, didn't leave the promised land, so he is reminded in his promise that he will have the land, his descendants will become the people of God and that he'll have the blessing. But God continues on for Jacob and he makes it personal and he says, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. Jacob Jacob has no idea where he is about to head. Jacob may have heard the story of Isaac and Rebekah and how Isaac, uh, how Abraham sent a servant to Haran and picked up Rebekah and only a few days of uh, only the journey really held them up. The servant only stayed there one night. Maybe he thinks it's going to be an easy trip, straight there, find a wife, come back. But he's about to serve in a land for 20-odd years. And then when he returns, he's going to be confronted by his brother who, of course, all he knows is he wants him dead. What God has planned for Jacob is trials and tribulations of toiling and service, not as the patriarch, but as the son-in-law, waiting, waiting and waiting upon God who will deliver him. The promise is there. The promise is now given from God to Jacob, his first interaction with God. Now he will have to wait on God in the midst of his toiling. Jacob responds when he awakes. He awoke from his sleep, verse 16, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. The great realization that we could all use every time we awake from a slumber, from a nap, from every morning when we rise. Surely Yahweh is in this place, and I did not know it. How often do we not realize that God is with us? How often is it that we have wandered off into our vain toiling, vain work, of our own power and own success and forget that God is with us? How often are we complacent in our own foolishness or our own arrogance like Jacob, heading off into the wilderness as a man who dwells in tents, thinking that he has this sorted. I've got the blessing. I will be right only to be humbled by an interaction with God. Our constant toiling often distracts us from the reality of God being with us. It often causes us to forget that God is working in each and every situation 
As Psalm 127 reminds us that unless God builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. Unless God watches over the city, the watchmen watch in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. What is going to see Jacob through is not his efforts and his strength, but that he will rest upon God, that he will take refuge in this promise and remember God's word and remember the fear that he felt in being humbled by God. I love the phrase, this place, how awesome is this place? How awesome is this place? If there is anything that we could do with more of, is the experience of God's holiness. I would encourage you, and maybe this is a tangent or a going off on a limb, to spend time in R.C. Sproul's lectures on God's holiness. R.C. Sproul is a man who I think studied and understood the holiness of God more than most. And I would encourage you, six lectures or so, or the book you can read, it is worth our time to be humbled in our anxious toil, to be humbled in our self-exaltation, in our self-confidence, to ponder the reality of the heavenly places and just how magnificent God is. And maybe we will have a moment where we say, how awesome is this place? For Jacob, the house of God and the gate of heaven was this place. This was where he experienced God for the first time. And this is the purpose of God in all of human history, that he will dwell with his people, that he'll see them face to face. He made this possible in the tabernacle and he made it possible in the temple through the sacrificial system that he could still dwell among a sinful people. But even greater, Jesus became God in flesh and dwelt with his people. And he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in the hearts of redeemed, sinful men and women. For Jacob, the house of God was this one moment. For the Israelites, the house of God was the tabernacle or the temple. For us, it's ourselves, our heart. It's where God has made a dwelling place for us. It's the church. He's building us together into a holy temple, as Ephesians 2 tells us. For Jacob, this image of the ladder was the gate to heaven. For us, we know the gate. His name is Jesus. And in John 10, he tells us, verse 7, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the gate of the sheep. Your translation may say door. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is the only gateway to the green pastures, the only gateway to true heavenly rest. Jacob will arrive back into the promised land to be confronted with his brother who wants to kill him. And God will be with him in the midst of that and bring him 
not to another, bring him to another stage of rest, only to be confronted with a famine, only to be then brought into Egypt and to then die. Jesus is the gateway to the heavenly rest, to the final rest, to the lasting rest of God that will last for all eternity, to the pinnacle of all creation, to the aim of Genesis 1 and 2, that rest will be had by all. Jesus is the gateway and the only means of being able to know the tension between toil and rest. So early in the morning, verse 18, back in Genesis 28, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel, that means house of God. The name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way and I, that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so I will come to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this is stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all of you and all and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Jacob, as was common in a place where you encountered God, would build a pillar. Abraham built many altars as a reminder of God's promises. Here, Jacob builds a pillar, pours oil on it as a ceremony of sacrifice to God. What is interesting in verse 20 is the word, if God, or the, the if God be with me. Jacob is about to go and serve his father-in-law for 20-odd years. And upon leaving he, and upon leaving that land, he will be confronted with his brother. And he will have all the promises of God working in his mind. And he makes this statement, if, if God is with me, I will keep, I will, I will have him as my Lord. It's a bold statement to make, and there's more humbling for Jacob to be had. He doesn't get to make if statements, because for 20 years he's going to have nothing. Upon leaving, he's going to have a lot. God is going to provide him with so much, but in order for God to humble him still, the first person he will see is his brother. And he's going to have to confront his brother who he deceived, who he ripped off. What we see in Jacob is even his experience here has left him to think that he can make a negotiation with God if, if God is with me. He will serve him. He will make him his Lord. What we don't realise is it's not about our toil, what Jacob didn't realize, it's not about his toil. Every bit of toil that he is going to do for his, uh, his, his father-in-law in the next few chapters is because God has willed it to be so, and it prospers because God has decided it to be so. What we should say and what Jacob should say is, God, I will be faithful with whatever you throw at me. 
Whether in prosperity or poverty, as Paul tells us in Philippians, we should be content in every and all situation. I have learned to be content in poverty and riches. When we know the true gateway to the greener pastures, when we know the gateway to the true rest, Jesus, we can say, I will be faithful despite what you give me, despite what comes my way. And whatever you give me, Jacob says, he will give a tenth of all he has. The one who has found the gateway into Christ has seen that it's not through our toil that we succeed, but it's through Christ and Christ alone that our toil produces any crop and any harvest. It's through Jesus. Mark 4, 26 to 29 tells us this great little parable and it says the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts his sickle because the harvest has come. We know not how. The farmer doesn't just scatter seed. He then has to water it and protect it and continue to labor over that seed, yet he cannot make any ground produce a crop. He doesn't know how it fashions itself. He doesn't know how it grows. Some crops will grow and some crops won't. And it's a great reminder for us that toiling, toiling isn't a guarantee of our success. Work isn't a guarantee that God is going to bless us but rest in him. It's a reminder that we can rest in him because he gives the growth. Some water, some plant, but God gives the growth. We need to take times where we are saying, God, you're doing this work. You're giving the growth. I'm going to step back from it and allow you to do it. I'm going to take that day Take that handful of quietness because two handfuls more of toil today will not achieve more harvest in the long run. Isaac, weary old man, knew that laboring over Jacob would be vain. So instead, in a handful of quietness, he sells him, sends him off into the hands of God into the wilderness. And God will deal with him as he teaches him to toil, but not to trust in his toil, but to trust in the one who gives the growth. To be faithful in the midst of being a slave to his father-in-law, faithful when he stands before his brother he deceived, and faithful when he's lying as an old man in a land that has severe famine, waiting waiting for a redeemer. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you are you are holy. Your home is in the heavens. The secret things belong to you. We cannot see the heavenly places. We do not know how you are working.
all that you are doing in this very moment, we cannot comprehend. Yet we will anxiously toil like we control it. We'll toil over our own sanctification or our friend or brother or sister's sanctification. We'll toil over evangelism. We'll toil over our children. But Lord, would we learn that you give the growth? That we should be content in poverty or riches. That we should be content in the midst of a harvest that is not growing. That in those times, we should take rest still. One more day, two more hands of toil will not increase the harvest. But we can rest because you don't. We can lie down in the wilderness on a rock bed and rest because you, Lord, are working. You proved it to Jacob, the angels toiling, descending upon the ladder on the Son of Man, back and forth. You show it in the fact that he will toil as a slave. And Lord, you're showing it to us. We cannot make one hair turn gray. We cannot add a single hour to our life. So Lord, would we take a handful of quietness and trust you with the toil and trust you with the growth that we know not how it happens. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.